I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And these are conversations about the news. We are in the midst of a communications revolution. We have access to more information than any people in history. But are we more informed or just overwhelmed by so much information we can't process it? These conversations are a year-long collaboration of the Bob Schieffer College of Communication at Texas Christian University and the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. As we continue our focus on the journalists who cover the Trump White House, this time our guest is Adam Intis of the Washington Post, who broke that story that uh, President Trump not only asked the FBI chief, James Comey, to stop the investigation into uh, the Russian situation, but also asked the director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, and the director of the National Security Agency, Admiral Mike Rogers, to do the same. Adam, I will uh, start by saying uh, you're new to the Washington Post, but you're not new to this beat. You've been covering national security for a long time. You were stationed for Reuters in uh, in Jerusalem. You worked for Reuters on this beat and then covering intelligence matters uh, for the Wall Street Journal. So this is not new territory for you. But what about this? What about this story that uh, that you just broke? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, obviously I think what we're trying to do is uh, – try to advance this, uh, get to the bottom of the Russia story, kind of looking at it from sort of two angles. Uh, One of them is trying to figure out what is the FBI investigating? What's the scope of that investigation? That's sort of one track for us. A second track for us is looking at the way the president uh, dealt with it. You know, the uh, uh, looking at sort of what some people might describe as obstruction, whether it's obstruction of the narrative surrounding the Russia story or its obstruction of justice is something that I'm, I'm not clear in my own mind as to what is actually taking place here. So uh, tell us in this story that you broke, give me, uh, just give me the facts on that. So, uh, you know, I think the context is critical. Um, the president uh, had made appeals to uh, FBI Director Comey to basically stop investigating uh, Michael Flynn, the national security advisor, uh, for the first short period of the uh, Trump Uh, White House. Uh, He had made an appeal to Comey for loyalty, according to Comey's associates' accounts of their interactions. And on March 20th, uh, Comey appeared before the House Intelligence Committee. And uh, during that appearance, he made uh, an extraordinary disclosure. Uh, He was authorized by the Justice Department to acknowledge that the FBI was investigating Russia's role meddling in the 2016 election. And that he said, uh, Comey said, that that investigation included uh, looking into the possibility that there was coordination uh, between the Russian government and uh, members of the Trump campaign. When Trump heard that, uh, I think, uh, according to officials, he was quite upset. And he was, I would say, a person looking for people that would be on his side, that would, uh, you know, help deflect Uh, The pressure that was building over the Russia investigation, calls on the Hill for a special counsel were building at the time. So during that period in the days that followed Comey's testimony, the president reaches out to the director of national intelligence, to the national security agency uh, head, and basically made an appeal, which is, uh, can you go out there publicly uh, and basically tell the American people that there's nothing here? that there is no uh, evidence of collusion, if you will, or coordination, which Comey had just 
uh, revealed. Now, keep in mind that in February, there was a report in the New York Times which very much upset the White House. And that report said that the FBI and the intelligence community had information that, uh, that members of the Trump campaign were in frequent contact with Russian intelligence officers. After that story ran, uh, the White House, this wasn't at the presidential level, it was below the president, reached out to the heads of the intelligence community on the Hill. So the uh, chairman uh, of the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee, as well as the uh, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, as well as as well as others, and asked them to call reporters at competing newspapers to the New York Times, including the Washington Post, uh, and asked them to, told them that there's nothing there, that that New York Times story is uh, false. That was an example of the Trump White House basically trying to use members of the intelligence community to push back at a news account. It is a totally different, more serious issue when the president himself is appealing to members of the intelligence community, the leaders of that intelligence community, to basically push back against a narrative that was spelled out by the FBI director himself as part of an active ongoing investigation. So we, we think, you know, with this story, we're, we're, we're basically getting a clearer picture of how Trump uh, responded to uh, what he sees, I think, uh, as a serious threat to his administration, which is this FBI investigation into possible collusion. Now, when this was going on, was this at about the same time that uh, Congressman Nunes, who is the, was then the chairman of what, the House Intelligence Committee, he was making this mysterious trip to the White House and then reporting to the president right. what he claimed he had found out from his own administration. Right. I think that we have seen a pattern of this. Uh, what Nunez did and what the president did in March after Comey's testimony is very similar in the sense it's designed to muddy the waters. Uh, the goal of, uh, of having Nunez in this case, who was a top advisor on intelligence to the transition, the Trump transition, to have Nunez go to the White House and basically uh, share intelligence, which he actually had obtained at the White House and viewed for the first time at the White House, was basically uh, an attempt to say that there was abuse by the intelligence community. He was, again, trying to basically make the argument that we're missing the real story here and that the real story, according to Nunez and according to the White House, would be incidental collection, as it's known, where uh, the intelligence community is targeting the Russians or foreign entities and sucking up communications either to, from, or about U.S. persons, in this case, members of the Trump campaign. And that being, in the, in the minds of Nunez, some sort of abuse, which it's a very common thing that occurs. It happens every day. Uh, and during the presidential campaign, I'm sure the intelligence community was sucking up not only Russian and other communications about Trump and about Trump members of Trump's team, but similarly about Hillary. And, and Hillary's team. In fact, they probably were sucking up more stuff about Hillary and her team because the presumption around the world uh, and in the United States, frankly, was that Hillary was going to win. And so uh, they were, I'm sure, talking among themselves in all the capitals around the world, and our NSA was sucking that up, about what Hillary would do when she was president. Just like later on, as Nunez reveals, uh, not that it should be a shock to anybody, that we were sucking up 
communications about what Trump would do when he became, if he became president. You know, I, I think uh, this is this is very important to hear you lay this out, and I want to make sure I understand what you're saying here. You're saying that our intelligence was listening in on conversations of, of foreigners, foreign diplomats, Russian diplomats, as well they should. Uh, and in the process of doing that, they heard them talking to U.S. officials or U.S. persons, right. uh, as it were. Uh, they weren't targeting the U.S. people. They were targeting the Russians, and they picked up this while while monitoring these Russian conversations. Right. To, to target a U.S. person, they would need to get uh, the approval of, they would need to get a court approval to do so. Um, in, in what we did learn and what we disclosed uh, a few weeks ago, which is that there was one FISA court warrant to listen to Carter Page, who was an advisor to Trump uh, in the early part of his campaign and sort of was pushed out of the campaign, uh, you know, over the summer, late in the summer. There was one warrant to target his communications directly. Otherwise, as far as we know, at least through the end of calendar year 16, 2016, the only uh, collection, which is a term of art for collecting the communications of foreigners, uh, the only types of collection that were coming in were through so-called incidental collection, where, like you said, we were targeting foreigners, we were tapped into communications networks of foreign governments, the Russians in particular. Uh, we were listening to the ambassador, Ambassador Kislyak, the Russian ambassador. And during, as they were having their conversations, those conversations might be directly with a member of the Trump campaign, in which case the NSA or the FBI would get both sides of that conversation, obviously. Or Kislyak or another Russian official might meet with a member of the Trump campaign. And then at the end of that meeting, uh, write a report to Moscow, send it to Moscow, in which case the NSA, CIA, uh, or FBI might intercept that communication, and in which case what you're seeing there is Kislyak or other Russian officials talking about their interactions or views of uh, members of the Trump team. So, you know, this is this is basically how this works, and it works everywhere. I mean, we're doing the same thing to the Israelis. The Israelis are doing it to us. We're doing it, you know, this is the game uh, of spies, right? And uh, in this case, my understanding is is most of the FBI's case of for coordination, if you will, comes from this sort of incidental collection, where you basically had the Russians talking a great deal about their perceptions and their interactions uh, with uh, with members of the Trump team. There, there's one thing that that I find interesting about all this, and when people say, "Why was Comey?" proceeding with this investigation, in my own mind, I would say because of this. We know that uh, General Flynn talked to Kislyak, the Russian ambassador. What we don't know, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I know, we don't know what he said to the Russian ambassador. But obviously, Director Comey knows what he said. Right. And that will be the next key thing. I think, in this investigation. What did he say? Do you have any indication? Have you, in yeah, your reporting, we, have you found out anything about what, 
what he said. Yeah. So when we, when we broke that story back in February, we had a rough outline of the uh, conversation. And so what it was was the sanctions were being imposed at the time by the outgoing Obama administration, uh, in which basically they were going to expel Russian diplomats whom the uh, U.S. officials uh, described as uh, spies. And uh, they were going to close some facilities that the Russians uh, have in the United States, uh, which again, the Americans were alleging were being used uh, for espionage purposes or to provide comfort to, uh, to spies, Russian spies. And so what happened in that conversation, according to officials uh, we spoke to and which we reported back in February, was that basically Flynn told Kislyak, you know, listen, if you don't uh, respond to these uh, sanctions, to these measures, punitive measures, when we are, take power, uh, you know, when we become uh, the government in a few weeks, we're going to revisit and look again at all of these sanctions. And so that's basically how that conversation went. And obviously, you know, at the time the conversation take, took place, maybe Flynn didn't realize, you know, this uh, notion of the Logan Act, which is that, you know, somebody who's not in government trying to interfere with the current government's uh, policies, um, you know, that that was an issue. Now, nobody really thinks the Logan Act is something that the Justice Department is going to prosecute anybody on. And that may, it may be in Flynn's mind when he realized that there was this obscure uh, law which barred him from doing what he was doing. Uh, maybe that's why he decides to lie in, in the way he describes that conversation. And then, of course, the administration sends Pence, the vice president-elect, and others out there to basically characterize uh, falsely uh, the nature of that conversation, which, of course, triggers the acting attorney general later after the inauguration to go to the top lawyer at the White House and explain that the Russians knew that Flynn was not telling the truth uh, because Kislyak, unlike Flynn, or we don't know actually how Flynn handled it, but Kislyak accurately reported uh, back to Moscow uh, his conversation uh, with Flynn. So Moscow knew what the, was discussed in that call. But Pence seemed to not really not have an idea. Either he was lying uh, when he when he uh, recounted uh, the nature of that call, or Flynn had lied to Pence, which is what I think Sally Yates uh, concluded uh, that there was this lie, and the Russians knew about a lie, and they could potentially use this lie down the road to try to you know pressure um, Flynn on on issues that were important to Russia by threatening to expose him for that lie. Let's bring in Andrew Schwartz. Thanks, Bob. Adam, you know, you broke a pretty huge story this week that claims that the president of the United States reached out to two U.S. intelligence heads of their respective uh, agencies to, to try to influence this investigation. When you got this story, did you then go to the White House and confront them? And what was that like? Yeah. I mean, it, it's... Uh uh, you know, I covered the Clinton White House, I covered the Bush White House, I covered the Obama White House, and now I'm covering the Trump White House. I I've never been in a situation before where it is so antagonistic. And, um, you know, in the old days, uh, even, you know, at the height of the Iraq War tension, you know, over WMD in Iraq and so on, I felt like I could go to people in the Bush White House and basically give them, in some cases, days to... Uh, uh, respond to think about what I'm asking them to come up with a comprehensive response. Uh, that is very different now. It's much more antagonistic. I, I'm, you know, uh, this the feeling I have, and maybe maybe it's uh, 
a misperception on my part. Can't rule that out, uh, but I, I feel like I'm going to be lied to no matter what. Really? Um, and, uh, you know, maybe they perceive that, that, I, that I am going to do my story no matter what, but I- increasingly I feel like I need to 100% uh, be done with my reporting uh, by the time I go to the White House, which is a terrible uh, thing, frankly. You know, and obviously if, if uh, no matter what they provide me, I'm going to incorporate it into my story for sure. But I have this fear as I'm approaching them that, uh, that I'm not going to be getting the truth. And that comes from the experience of the last few months, in fact, the last six months of reporting on this story, where over and over again, w- we were lied to, such as on Flynn and his conversation with Kislyak. And only after we basically told them we're not changing our story, we're, we're standing by our sources, do they then change their account. Uh, I'll give you a, a great example. And it's not just the White House. We had a story last week about a conversation, a private conversation in June 2016 on Capitol Hill between uh, the majority leader on the Republican side of the House and uh, Paul Ryan, the Speaker, and several other Republican leaders. So the the story was that basically McCarthy, uh, the Republican leader, in a private moment after meeting with the Ukrainian Prime Minister, talked about how the uh, Russians had just hacked the DNC and, uh, and that he believed that they stole the opposition research on Trump. And then Ryan basically says, to give it to whom? And, uh, and then basically McCarthy says, you know, I think there are two people that Putin pays. Dana Rohrbacher, the California congressman, Republican, uh, who has been a longtime defender of Putin in Russia, and Trump. There's some laughter in the room. And then McCarthy adds, swear to God. Ryan then responds by basically telling everybody in the room not to leak what was just said. Uh, And then there's a series of exchanges that culminate in Ryan saying, what's said in the family stays in the family. So I went to uh, Ryan's office, McCarthy's office, and the other leadership offices. And I initially told them, I didn't want to tell them about the sourcing of this because I was afraid that they would try to track down the source and threaten the person or persons. So I just told, I just gave them the quotes of the exchange, they came back to me and said, this is fiction. I then went back to them and I said, listen, we're going to be attributing this to a transcript of the exchange. Then all the Ryan's office came back and said, all five spokespeople for the members that were in that meeting will publicly deny that it took place. In fact, they were all there and remember 100% that that conversation never happened. So then I told them uh, about an hour before publication that we actually are attributing this to an audio recording of the conversation and that we had verified it and that we were going to be quoting on the record uh, one of the participants who actually was in the meeting to also confirm it in addition to attributing it to an audio recording. To which that point the same person from Ryan's office calls my editor, the national security editor, the, excuse me, the, uh, the national editor, and basically says, you know, listen, we were all in that meeting. We remember it clearly, uh, and it was a joke. So obviously you can see, like, this is basically what we're dealing with now where I don't know who to believe anymore, whether it's the White House or the people on the Hill. I, ha- I feel like in order for me to publish a story I need to be so confident in the information before I even approach them 
so that I can do what I did with Ryan's office, which is basically stand up to the bullying and basically say, bullshit, you know, this is what it is. And that's what I have to do now every time. In the Bush years, I could have that conversation with them and they could, like, I could trust that they would honestly tell me, maybe they would spin it, but they would honestly give me an account. And and now I feel like that I'm going to be intentionally misled in every interaction. And that is so bad for everybody. It's not sustainable for them. It's horrible for us. The trust is is gone. And, you know, for our, if, if us in the, you know, in the mainstream media, if you will, are trying to basically educate the public to what's going on behind the scenes in Washington, it just becomes in, incredibly difficult for us to, you know, to do our jobs. It's, it raises the bar, obviously, for everything we publish. But uh, I think it, it's a disservice to them in the long run to create this antagonism uh, and I don't know how we're going to get we're going to get past it. Let me. Um, my reaction to that is wow. I, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I've been here a long time, and I've I've covered a lot of different stories and confronted people with and gotten some very weird responses. I've never heard anything as outrageous as the story that you have just told. Did you talk to Speaker Ryan himself about that? No, I didn't. Um, you know, and. Um, you know, to the defense of the of the spokesperson and the spokespeople, you know, I, I understand where they're coming from in the sense that obviously they wanted to uh, they wanted to kill a story that was unfavorable. I get that, you know, but at the same more than t- unfavorable, explosive. True, but well, I'm sure there were stories Richard Nixon would like to have killed. I mean, but <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, the, the and idea he tried, but. the idea that I'm ever going to trust those people again, you know, next time I have something. Am I ever going to believe what they tell me? The answer is no. I mean, they've totally burned the bridge with me. I well, mean, that's, I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't trust them either. No, I, I, I don't. And I've dealt with that office for years. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I you know, it's, uh, it's really been terribly depressing for me. You know, somebody who I obviously have not been working in Washington as long as you have, but, you know, I have never encountered so much lying. And, um, I think in in some ways maybe it's it's good for journalism in the sense that uh, you know I don't do fishing expeditions anymore. I mean there used to be you know I'm sure we've all done fishing expeditions. We've maybe bluffed sometimes, thought you know tried to get uh, somebody to confirm something when you think you know what's true, um, and you're just trying to get a little bit over the hump. Uh, you can't you really can't do that anymore because the answer you're going to get from so many people nowadays is just is you no longer can trust that the answer's true. And there are still a few people that are left that I feel like are honest to us. I, I was at the Pentagon the other day and saw uh, you know an old uh, you know uh, an, an old hand over there who I was explaining this to uh, and and he also was lamenting uh, this kind of uh, a total um, you know willingness to just bald-faced lie uh, that we're getting these days. And so it's, it's bad for, frankly, the professional communicators uh, in government who, just like us, trade on our, you know, on us being reliable. You know, I never want to make a mistake in a story. I don't want to get it wrong. I, I want to get it right. I want to get it exactly right, you know, every time. And every time, you know, that, that there's a mistake, which happens, I'm killing myself about it. But this and inf- correcting it. And correcting it. I mean, it's, it's a horrible uh, feeling to make a mistake. 
and I and I've made mistakes, you know, and and always want to correct them. But to now go into every encounter on a story that's explosive or not, and feel like one side, no matter what, is going to tell you something that's not true, it really is disheartening to be a journalist in this town at this point in time. It's very exciting, obviously, but it's also very disheartening. Uh, and how do we get past this? Is this something that's going to correct so what, So what happens when you go to the White House with this story, your next story? Are you getting the same kind of experience with the White House as you are with uh, the Speaker's office? Uh, yes. I mean, it's, sometimes it's hard to tell if uh, this White House, I mean, certainly the strategy uh, of the White House is to basically deny everything uh, and then only grudgingly later uh, acknowledge it and act upon it. Uh, such as what we saw with Flynn, such as what we saw with Sessions when he had to recuse himself for failing to disclose his contacts with the Russian ambassador during his confirmation hearings. Increasingly, uh, what I'm doing is uh, trying to find these kind of, if you will, perfect boxes where somebody says something, you fact check it, you find that it's incorrect in an irrefutable way, you go back to them and you give them a chance to acknowledge that they had misrepresented something. Unfortunately, every time uh, they are doubling down with the lie initially before it becomes impossible for them to continue with that lie, in which case they basically switch to a we don't recall uh, sort of position, uh, which frankly is what is probably the smarter position to take from the very beginning if, if, you're, if you're not prepared to stand by a lie. Um, th- this is sort of the, the, game, the game now, uh, which is, um, you know, fact check. Uh, get irrefutable evidence that there's a lie, go back to them, give them a few hours. I mean, the case of the story from earlier this week, we gave them five hours. We had multiple sources uh, confirming that, uh, both current and former. Uh, And uh, we went to the White House uh, at uh, 1230 in the afternoon, the day of publication, uh, and we gave them until 6 p.m. to uh, respond uh, to it. And they basically asked us, frankly, to not publish the story uh, until the next day. They wanted to wait until President Trump uh, woke up in the Middle East during his travels to ask him about it. And the editors decided uh, that uh, waiting overnight was not feasible um, because uh, certain members of the the congressional delegations who are investigating uh, Russia and Trump's uh, connections with the Russians uh, had already been uh, notified about this. So we, we didn't feel like we had, uh, that the, we couldn't wait uh, overnight for that. Plus, we felt like five hours, six hours was, was enough time. So the congressional investigators actually knew about this before you knew about it. Yeah, and, and uh, my understanding is, is uh, they found out about it a, a few days before we found out about it. Now, uh, where, you know, where that goes, uh, you know, I have no idea. Obviously, in the case of of Rogers, there's a memo that was written. I'm not sure if there's a similar memo on the DNI side uh, that obviously, like the Comey memos, could eventually be part of, uh, you know, an investigation to contemporaneously uh, review the notes of top officials describing their interactions with the president, again, with regard to, you know, the way he was handling this FBI investigation. You know, I, uh, I keep getting people asking me about the Watergate parallels. And I must say, in the beginning, I didn't quite see it. But now, as as this continues to unfold, trying to fire uh, the chief investigator, these stories that uh, trying to get other people 
to deny it. I mean, Richard Nixon went through all of these steps. I mean, we saw that. We also know where that came out. And I keep thinking about uh, Iran-Contra and Ronald Reagan and George Shultz. People within the administration came to Shultz and asked him to do certain things, and he said, no, I'll have no part of that. And then when the congressional investigators called George Shultz up to Capitol Hill, I'll never forget it. He walked up. He sat down at the table. He brought not even a briefcase, let alone a prepared statement. He just sat down at the table, folded his hands, and said, basically, I'm here to answer your questions, which he did. Uh, Ronald Reagan managed to get past Iran-Contra. Richard Nixon obviously never got past uh, Watergate. And I wonder if we're seeing something like that uh, unfold here. This Russian investigation, to my way of thinking, will never be settled by just President Trump denying that it ever happened. Now we have this investigation underway. Do you see any indication that the uh, Trump White House uh, is changing its strategy, that eventually they'll have to put it all out on the table, Uh, they'll have to cooperate with investigators, or do you see it going the way it's going? At this point, frankly, I don't know. I mean, uh, so far their strategy has basically been to deny that there's anything here. And, uh, you know, at at this point, uh, in terms of, you know, obviously smoke, and, and this, this effort to try to change the narrative or kind of discourage the FBI from proceeding, either through Comey himself or through other people. Is, is this an effort to change the narrative, an uncomfortable narrative, or is this a, an effort to obstruct justice, or is it a combination of those two things? I'm not sure. I think President Trump uh, is obsessed with narrative, as we've seen. So... Uh, you know, he he could have started down this path of uh, lying and and pushing back um, as part of an effort to basically kind of uh, change the narrative rather than to actually get in the way of an FBI investigation or congressional investigations. But it could become it could have the impact of affecting it. I mean, would would uh, we have a special counsel named if Comey had not you know been fired and then subsequent to Comey's firing? the disclosures about his communications with the president, if that had not been revealed and that pressure hadn't increased, would there have been the promote, would there have been an appointment of a special counsel? I'm skeptical. You know, I think by trying to change the narrative, by trying to muddy the waters um, so that people are not sure what the truth is, I think the goal is to buy space for the Republicans on the Hill and frankly for the Justice Department not to uh, take this investigation and put it to the next level, which is what they did last week with the appointment of the special counsel. In the end, uh, is the White House going to cooperate? I think there, you know, there might be a situation where uh, it's divided, um, and you see some people cooperate uh, and others don't. I think you know you do have professionals um, like, I mean, frankly, Rogers and Coates, the way they handled this request by the president in March, I thought was, you know seemed appropriate. I mean, they basically deemed it an inappropriate ask by the president, and they did not do it. Uh, They did not comply with the president's requests. So that seems to me like intelligence chiefs thinking principally about their their buildings, frankly, and the integrity uh, that they uh, want the staffs that they represent uh, to feel 
about their services, right? And, uh, you know, the Intel services like, uh, you know, certainly try to not get involved in politics and uh, don't want to be seen as taking sides, particularly against a, a you know, a, a powerful, well-liked within the building FBI director. Uh, so again, you know, Coates is thinking of his employees and his service, right? And his own personal reputation. You know, Rogers, a longtime, you know, longtime military uh, officer, Admiral Rogers is thinking again of you know his employees uh, and the integrity of him, not only himself but of his of the National Security Agency. Uh, that's what's on the line here for these people. If they're not willing to do the bidding of the president, just because the president's asking them to do it, and they don't feel comfortable within the fact that they're willing to say, "I'm not going to do that to the president," I think is a encouraging uh, sign that there are there are pockets of people who are thinking about integrity. Uh, and are thinking about independence, which is, frankly is reassuring to people like myself, and I'm sure you, that it's it, that we're it's not completely a smoke and mirrors game here that's being played, which is which increasingly it feels like. You know, uh, to brag on CSIS a little bit, uh, Heather Conley uh, from CSIS uh, has headed the team that's put together a remarkable book called The Kremlin Playbook, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And she and her team have gone in and analyzed what the Russians were doing in in, uh, uh, Central and Eastern Europe. And basically, they're going in, they're trying to undermine institutions, they're trying to buy off uh, people that they think can convert things to their cause. It's no longer just the old Soviet Union with their troops and tanks. Uh, they've adopted an entirely different method now uh, of trying to influence and, and basically dominate uh, these countries. And when you read uh, Heather Connolly's analysis, it's very difficult to believe that the Russians weren't doing exactly the same thing during our election. Do you have any doubt in your mind uh, that the, about whether the Russians were meddling in this election and, in the word of the week, suborning uh, U.S. persons uh, as John Brennan, the former CIA director, put it the other day. Yeah. I mean, certainly the intelligence community reached a, a high confidence assessment to this effect. And uh, to reach a high confidence assessment uh, is a pretty uh, – something that I uh, I know that they don't take lightly. Now, do I think that uh, there were maybe other governments that also were looking to, uh, you know, find, uh, if you will, friendlies uh, within uh, the various campaigns? I, I would be surprised if – you know, there were other governments, if there weren't other governments uh, doing something similar to what it appears the Russians were doing. I mean, you know, when you when you look at who's, uh, uh, you know, there's a few governments that have uh, a lot, have gained a lot from uh, Trump's uh, victory. I, I think you can argue that uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Israel, uh, in addition to Russia, uh, pot- potentially, and maybe even more than Russia, uh, have a lot to gain from the current uh, makeup of the cabinet and the current makeup of, of, of the White House. And so uh, what, you know, I think uh, it, is, it is normal for uh, foreign governments, especially uh, friends and foes alike, uh, to uh, attempt to find friendlies and influence the policies of uh, incoming administrations. But what happened in this case, obviously, was truly extraordinary uh, in, in the way we had, the, you know, what appears to be the Russians, you know, obviously stealing 
uh, information as part as, as part of normal espionage. Now, the Chinese might have been doing the exact same thing. Uh, and I'm sure, and frankly, I'd be surprised if they weren't. Uh, but they did not take that information and then inject it through WikiLeaks in this case into the bloodstream, if you will, uh, in order to uh, basically uh, support one one candidate and undermine uh, another candidate. The events of 2016 are really extraordinary. And, you know, obviously the disclosures that were made at the end of the Obama administration about the findings of the intelligence community uh, have uh, in some ways made it very uh, difficult for the Trump team now to operate the way they may have hoped they, they might have been able to operate with regard to Russia, because that is out there. You know, it's, it's something that is going to make it, has made it very difficult because of the public attention. And when we, we got to keep in mind here, if, you know, I, I take uh, the intelligence community says that the goal here, number one of the Russians, uh, was basically to undermine confidence in our system and therefore make their system look, in comparison, uh, equal if, you know, or not so bad, if you will. And um, the current churn in Washington, this uh, constant, you know, questioning of Trump and his motives, uh, they must be, uh, frankly, lapping it up in uh, the Kremlin. Uh, You know, they maybe didn't get what they maybe were hoping for by having Trump elected in the sense that the sanctions remain in place and Trump's ability to to loosen them is limited by by the political environment. I think it's going to be harder now for him to lift the sanctions than it would have been. No, absolutely. And and uh, they must be, I'm sure that must be frustrating for them. But if their number one objective was to cast doubt on the American system and, and our government and, uh, you know, our moral high ground, chip away at that, I think uh, what we're seeing now is, uh, you know, may not be the loosening of the sanctions, but certainly they, if the objective was to uh, chip away at our uh, perceived credibility uh, as a system, I think they've more than succeeded at uh, raising doubts about our system. Well, some would say that they were initially trying to meddle in our election because they were trying to hurt Hillary Clinton. They thought Hillary was going to win, as most people thought Hillary was going to win. And uh, it's no secret that there's no love lost between Putin and uh, the Clintons. So you know, some would say that they were trying to hurt the Clintons. I want to ask you this, Adam. There's been breaking stories just about every day. You've been breaking some big ones we've talked about here. I saw something on Twitter last night that I want your reaction to, and it comes from uh, your former colleague from the Wall Street Journal, uh, Yaroslav Chermikov, who said, these stories are fascinating, but at some point the leaks have got to stop. What do you say to that? I think what's, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to use, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a loaded term, but um, there's a bit of, a, of, if you will, an insurgency within the bureaucracies. Now, you know, fighting insurgencies, uh, there are kind of two ways you can deal with insurgencies. Uh, One of them is you can punish people to try to raise the price of leaking in this case, uh, which I think we have seen already, uh, you know, in the president, one of his comments to Comey, according to the New York Times account, was, you know, why don't you jail some journalists instead of investigating the Russia stuff and the Flynn stuff? Another way to uh, address leaks is, and an insurgency is is basically a, a, a hearts and minds campaign where uh, people inside feel like uh, they're being heard uh, and that uh, you know they're they're not that the things that they cherish are not being undermined. So far, this administration's approach to dealing with the leaks has, I think, been a stick. It's been designed to scare people, and I think that has, to some degree, been effective. 
uh, at uh, at reducing the number of leaks. Although I think the last few weeks have proven that uh, fear alone is not uh, uh, inhibiting people from talking. You know, I, I do agree with Yaroslav in the sense that uh, I think this will ebb and flow. Um, I think we uh, we saw uh, some amazing disclosures in uh, February, January, and February. Uh, then there was a, a lull, and then now we've seen another spike connected maybe to Comey's firing, uh, and there could be another lull. Uh, certainly, uh, the appointment of a special counsel addresses one of the objectives, I think, of some of the people who were uh, talking. That said, I think when people see things that really outrage them and offend their uh, sense of right, what's right, that people will find a way to talk. So, so I, I think there could be a, another lull in, in the flow of information, either because people are afraid or because they're, you know, they feel like their concerns are being addressed. But I do think, you know, in the end, the truth will come out. I mean, that's been my experience. It's every, I keep on telling this to the spokespeople that I sometimes deal with, which is like, you know, the lies are going to be exposed. And why even go there? You know, and uh, so I do think it may take time uh, and people might be uh, seeing that the pace of the coverage might slow during periods of time and disclosures might dry up. But in the end, hopefully the, the truth will fully come out about what, what occurred. Adam Entis, who's had one of the most important stories of, of this whole uh, series of big stories and may prove to be one of the most important stories of all uh, once we uh, finally get through this. Uh, thanks so much for being with us this morning. And uh, for Andrew Schwartz, this is Bob Schieffer. Thanks for listening. Is it a physical attraction? Is it sexual satisfaction? Is it long life together? Oh, going through all kinds of weather. Is it holding each other's hands? Making all kinds of plans? Never, never saying goodbye. Never, never making each other cry. Love is all the above. That's what love is. Love is everything underneath the sun. That's what love is. Ah, all of the above. Is it a walk in the park? Or is it kissing in the dark? Is it strolling in the rain? Is it joy? Or is it pain? If love really the answer, then what could be the question? I look in the sky and I pray Love is all the above 
That's what you 